which we joined with CityServe. Uh, we joined with a bunch of other churches and organizations across the city to be able to just kind of serve in different places. And, and our, our church joined in uh, Old Town to do some cleanup. We pulled out a bunch of bushes, planted some flowers, did a lot of weeding and stuff like that. It was a pretty good experience. So thank you all for uh, coming out who did that. Uh, I think our city's impacted uh, every time we do this. I saw a lot of buzz on uh, social media yesterday about all the different projects, not just ours. I think it's a real blessing to the city of Augusta, and it's a cool thing that we're a part of. So thank you for doing that. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue in Acts, but before we get started, I'm just going to ask that you uh, join me in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time together. I thank you for this people that you've called together to uh, be witness of who Jesus is, to, to, to have Jesus made known to us by the work of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that uh, through your Spirit this morning, you'd be uh, stirring in our hearts, that you'd be opening the eyes of our hearts, that we would know what great love you have for us, and that that great love that you have for us would call us to go and tell everybody, to, to love everybody, uh, and to, uh, to confront some of the, the places in us that would... Uh, where we, where we don't love. Lord, would you just deliver good news to us so that we would love like you love and that we would live like you live. I pray that you would say what you want said, that uh, you would have each ear hear what you would want it to hear, and that your Holy Spirit would be at work in each of our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question this morning that I want to ask is what if God calls you to a place that you're not allowed to go? Like, what if he calls you to a place that makes you uncomfortable? Or what if he calls you to a people you don't like? Or to a people that you don't like to be, like, wouldn't want to be associated with? What if he calls you to a people that you don't relate to? Like, are there places where you won't go? Maybe you don't realize it. I want you to think about it. Are there places where you won't go? Are there people you will ignore? You remember Jonah from the Old Testament. God called him to arise and go to Nineveh, a place of Gentiles, a people Jonah did not care for. And Jonah knew that God was good and that God was gracious and that if Jonah went and preached uh, God's name to them and, and made God famous there, that God would save them. And Jonah wanted no part of it. And the question is, is, are there places that you want no part in taking the gospel? Are there places uh, or no, are there people that we're, to whom we're unwilling to speak? Are there people we're unwilling to be with? If, if you're honest, are there people you would just rather let die than have to go and be with them? If we at Redemption Church are honest, if we are honest, I think we have some prejudices that would keep us from going places with the gospel, would keep us from going to people with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus. Like we may keep them covered up pretty well, but I believe uh, this morning that God wants to confront the prejudices that exist in our hearts. So this morning we're picking up in Acts chapter 10, verse 1 through 33, as we keep moving in our series called Church on the Move, uh, just taking uh, Acts chapter 8 through 12 as we've been going through the entire book of Acts throughout this year. So if you want to turn there, it's Acts chapter 10, 
verses 1 through 33, and I'm going to read uh, this scene. Now, this, this whole episode kind of actually goes all the way into chapter 11. I'm going to divide it up, and I'm going to cover this first part this week, and next week we'll cover the next part. So read this with me. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God. With all his household, he gave alms generously to all people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God who came in, an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. Attended him, And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw heaven, he saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all the kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry of Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brother, brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and, and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted, it, um, lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. 
So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. This morning, we're going to observe like two things about the work going on in this story, about the work happening in this episode, about the church on the move in this scene. And we're going to pull two principles out as well for Redemption Church, but right away I want to first address two common misconceptions about this passage. Because I think that before we can get on with drawing out what God has for us in this passage at Redemption Church, we need to flip this thing like upside down. Or maybe we need to flip it right side up, but it's got to be flipped. We need to address these two common misconceptions we may have about this story. And so the first misconception is this. It's that we might think the story is about how we can eat whatever we want to, right? Because we know, many of you know, that in the Old Testament, there's a bunch of things that God's people can't eat. And today, we eat many of those things. And this is kind of like the story we go to for the justification of what we're allowed to eat. This is where we go. This is what I want us to hear. But what Christians are allowed to eat is not the primary message of this passage. What Christians are allowed to eat is not the primary message of this passage, and that's the misconception. Like, sure, food is addressed here. Like, to some extent, food's addressed here, but it's not the primary message of this passage. I want to read you something from uh, commentator Willie James Jennings. He, He writes this. He says, We are the inheritors of histories that have imagined the entire world through scenes that mock this moment in our history. Like imagining God to be actually saying to man, look here on the unknown world and take all you want. But Peter's not being asked to possess as much as he's being asked to enter in, become through eating a part of something that he did not imagine himself a part of before the eating. This new eating grows out of another invitation to eat, one offered by his Savior and his friend. This is my body, which is given for you. And I want us to think just like over the narrative that we've been going through in Acts, if you've been with us for some time, if you think as we've been going through Acts and like unfolding this story, the Holy Spirit, what's about, right? The Holy Spirit's coming. He makes witnesses into Jerusalem, into Judea, into Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, to all people. That's what the narrative has been going. That's how we're following this. Acts 1.8, just kind of following that outline. And what we've been discovering is that this whole narrative is primarily about the advancement of the kingdom, right? It's about advancing the gospel message to the ends of the earth. That's what Luke's writing about. And if it's all about advancing the kingdom to the ends of the earth, just consider this with me. If it's all about advancing the kingdom to the ends of the earth, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, wouldn't it be kind of strange for Luke to unfold what is actually the longest episode in the entire book, as it goes even into chapter 11 next week, wouldn't it be strange for him to unfold the longest episode of the book of Acts just to make an aside note that we can all eat barbecue together? Right? That would be kind of a weird, that doesn't make sense. He's a pretty good writer. He's doing some good stuff. He's unfolding something. It's a long, weird aside if he goes there. It's not about that. It's about the kingdom advancing to the ends of the earth. Now, of course, if the narrative is about the kingdom advancing to all peoples and to the ends of the earth, then cultures are going to start bumping up against each other, and there's going to have to be some stuff that's dealt with, like what we're allowed to eat 
and how we're, what we're allowed to wear and whether grown men need to be circumcised in order to be a part of this. We're going to get to that in the next few chapters as well. So the food thing is dealt with here, but it isn't the main point of the narrative. That's a long way to say that. The food isn't the main point of this narrative. That's misconception one. Misconception two. I think we may assume that Peter knows what's up when he's going to Cornelius, right? Like, I think we tend to suppose that Peter and the other apostles and the early church already could see where this whole thing was going. They knew Acts 1-8, right? That wasn't in existence. They didn't know the verse. But Jesus had said, this is what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to come. You're going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we just kind of assume that they understood, okay, that's how this thing's going to play out. We're just going to go on it. And we think that they understand it, that they get it, and that they were all on board and that they're going after it and they're on the mission. But I'm not totally convinced that that's true. I think they're being faithful, but I'm not sure that they're convinced or I'm not, I'm not convinced that they totally know where this thing is going and totally get the whole scope of what Jesus is doing with his kingdom. Last week, Reggie talked about uh, how God just keeps interrupting lives and keeps surprising his people, how Jesus keeps surprising his people. And I think this scene is yet another interruption, another surprise. I mean, think about it. As soon, I mean, as soon as Peter hears God tell him in verse 13 to kill and eat, a sheet full of animals, some clean, some unclean, all of them unclean by their proximity to one another. Peter turns around and says, by no means. Like, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And then the vision is repeated three times, and then when Peter's in the house of Cornelius a couple days later, having thought about this a good bit more, Peter says in verse 28, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So having an understanding of the vision, Peter obeys the Lord and enters in with those he once thought unclean and common, those who once would have made him unclean just by being in the same proximity as them. But here's what I want to see. I want us to see is that Peter learns all of that here, like in this passage. He's just now getting it. It's an interruption. It's a surprise. He's just now getting a grip on this. He wasn't in Joppa looking to spread the gospel to Gentiles because he knew all the next steps to take or he knew the mission and he had a plan. He was just there with his own people. Peter's interrupted. He's surprised. I mean, the things that he ends up doing that we just read about, the places that he enters into, this is is taboo. This is not good. There's going to be a meeting about this in chapter 11, right? Somebody's going to have to answer for what's up here. We will see all of this next week in chapter 11, like I said, but this is this taboo. It's not okay. And Peter even kind of says it here. The church is on the move. They were seeing God do incredible things. They were being faithful and preaching Jesus in his kingdom, but I'm not convinced that they understood the part about going to the ends of the earth quite yet. Most of the time, as we've been reading, they don't seem to know what's happening until after God has already done it. But God is interrupting things. He's full of surprises, and Peter has experienced it like a few times now, and so maybe that's why he's able to hear the command arise and go, and, and he goes towards the discomfort. But Peter isn't in Joppa, the land where Jonah was called to arise and go to the Gentile city of Nineveh in order to do better than Jonah. 
He wasn't there in order to purposely find a way to advance the gospel to the Gentiles. He and the other witnesses have been going to the Jews, and God just keeps interrupting and taking them to the Samaritans and now to the Gentiles. So those are the two misconceptions, among many, that I thought we needed to address first. The story isn't about what Christians are allowed to eat, number one. Nor is it about Peter and the church like plowing ahead on mission so that if we just do what they do, we would win cities for Jesus. No. It's about God advancing his kingdom to the ends of the earth. That's what this story is about. God advancing his kingdom to the ends of the earth. I said there's two principles that I want us to take away from the passage today, but first, they hinge on two observations uh, about the work that's happening in the story. So I just want to take a look at those. And the first one we just said, it comes right out of it. It comes out of correcting the misconception. And it's the fact that it's God doing the work, right? We've already, we've already said it, but it's about God advancing the kingdom to the ends of the earth. And then the second thing that we need to observe and understand is what kind of work God is doing. So I want to take a brief look at that. What kind of work is God doing? Like if God is doing the work, what kind of work is he doing that would require bringing his people into the picture, bringing Peter into the picture? Now we've seen, I think, in every page of this book of Acts, we've seen God going before everybody and going before every scene. He goes before them and he makes a way for the kingdom to advance. He goes before them to Samaria. He goes before Philip and the Ethiopian and he provides a place for baptism along the desert road. He went before Paul, and he sent him Ananias. And so far, everywhere Peter's going, God has been going before him and doing something in the town over, and then the people call for Peter. Like, uh, God just saved Samaritans. Peter, we're going to need you to come over here, right? And so Peter goes, and he baptizes them in the Holy Spirit. And the, or why is he in Joppa? Because he was a town over. Somebody dies, Tabitha, and they say, Peter's just a town over. Let's call for Peter. Come to Joppa and raise Tabitha from the dead. And here in this episode, God goes before Peter into Caesarea with Cornelius, who will send for Peter to come as well. And I think that it's important for us to see that if the work that God is going about is just letting people know about Jesus, God can do that work on his own. And God doesn't need Peter, and God doesn't need anybody else, right? I mean, Paul met Jesus on the road. Jesus appeared to him and made himself known to Paul. He didn't need anybody else, but he sent for Ananias. He sent a vision of an angel of God to Cornelius, so why bring Peter in the picture? If the only thing God is doing is making Jesus known to people, he can do that without using these folks. So why call for Peter? What kind of work is he doing that means calling for Peter? It's because the work isn't only about individuals knowing who Jesus is. He's all about rescuing and saving individuals into a new identity and making them a people. Last year we went through Matthew, and the year before that we went through Matthew. Maybe you remember Matthew 16 and 18, or Matthew 16 and 18, when Jesus told Peter, on this rock I will build my church. He's all about reconciling, redeeming, and restoring people into a family. He's making a people for himself. He's building his church. That's the kind of work that he's doing. And this scene in Acts 10 and into 11 
is one of the most pivotal moments in the early church. Like it must have informed their mission and their message and Peter and Paul's later writings that we read all through the New Testament as they begin to understand the greater work of Jesus more clearly. Look what Paul writes later. It's in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 through 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken us down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And here's one from Peter, which we spent time in 1 Peter last fall, and we spent some time in this particular passage, 1 Peter 2 through 9, 2, 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you were God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. And I read those things because of this. This is my point. God is doing the work, and the kind of work he is doing is the work of reconciling, uniting, making one body, building his church, building a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for himself, from a people who were not a people. Like God's doing the work, and the kind of work he is doing is becoming more and more exposed. And in this pitiful pivotal moment, it becomes more and more exposed as he interrupts and surprises his people as he advances the kingdom through them. So he brings Peter over to Caesarea and to Cornelius to witness the kingdom advancement to these Gentiles. He brings them over to witness how the kingdom is advancing to these Gentiles and even those who are part of the Roman military and to connect this new part of the body with the whole body the whole church. And God is revealing another surprise to Peter and to the church in this moment and over the next few chapters. Whatever God's kingdom will look like, it will look different than expected even still. It won't be a kingdom against the people of the nations. It will be making a new nation of all peoples from all nations. And so I say all that because Whatever principles we pull out from this text, uh, from this passage, will have to be in line with God who does the work and the kind of God, I mean, and the kind of work that God is doing. So there's two principles that we'll move into quickly. Ajit Fernando, commentator, says that verse 28, Acts 10, verse 28, is the most pivotal uh, message of the passage. I agree with him, and I want to just read that with you. Verse 10, 28 says this. And he said to them, Peter said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone from another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. It's here that we should see that the person and work of Jesus confronts our prejudices. The gospel confronts our prejudices. And that's our first principle to look at. Like in Peter's 
vision, he sees a sheet full of animals, some clean, some unclean, which would render them all clean just by their proximity with one another. But food isn't the only thing unclean in this passage. Check it out. Like Peter's in Joppa, where Jonah caught his boat out of town. It's a fishing town. It stinks. The house he is in is that of a tanner. Right? So there's animal hides and animal skins all over the place. It stinks. It's blue collar. And to the likes of Cornelius, the centurion of the Italian cohort, and to the likes of Theophilus, who Luke is writing to, in that class, it's sort of not where you'd expect to find something great happening. It's blue collar. And then what about Cornelius in Caesarea? In Caesarea? He's part of the Roman military, part of the rich, the white-collared type. Not only Gentile, but among the respected Gentiles, these people are the kind of people that are unclean to Peter, right? See, this, this vision and this scene isn't just about food. It's about identity. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 23 through 26, that's where God is giving the law concerning what can and cannot be eaten. He says this, just after talking about like laws against sacrificing children and laws against all kinds of sexual immorality, he says this. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I am driving out before you. For they, they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the people. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast, or by bird, or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. See, this isn't about the food. It's about identity. It was about separating his people from the things that were like tied to the sinful ways and the, the, the crooked worship customs of the other nations, things that might tempt and lead his people to worship other false gods and false idols. They were not set apart in this way to create a prejudice, but to identify Israel as God's people and to help them stay centered on God as they were sent to spread his fame. But eventually, it's distorted into prejudice, into one identity set against another identity. Like if you're a Jew, even a follower of Jesus as king at this time, you would have this idea of identity set against another, and all your expectations are probably around making a nation of Israel great again. And if that's the case, who would think that a Roman military personnel could be a part of the family, a part of this nation, a part of the holy nation, a part of the kingdom of God? But what Peter gets from the vision is that the kingdom is much bigger and much different than expected or that he, than he had imagined. Jesus has come for all and to make all clean. Even Peter's message, which is in the next piece here that we'll get to next week, will announce that Jesus died for the sins of all to make all clean. And here in verse 28, the pivotal verse of the morning, there's an immediate understanding of the vision that he had, that where he once could not be in proximity to those considered unclean, because of the person and work of Jesus meant forgiveness for all, now there was no way he could stay away from it. 
You know, I didn't realize it like until more recent years how much prejudice I was raised with. Like how much prejudice was in our culture. And not just in the South. I'm from Phoenix, Arizona. It's there too. It's just different. But I wouldn't have said I was racist. But looking back now, there was no way I was inviting a person of color into certain situations or certain family events or activities. It just wouldn't have been acceptable. Right? And maybe some of you can relate to this. Like, maybe not as much now, hopefully, but can you imagine having an African American marry into your white family? I didn't even know that that was in me, but I, you know, but how would my family have looked at that? How would your family have looked at that if you're white? It just ain't right. It's not just racial prejudice either. According to those who influence me, like my family and my churches that I grew up with, Democrats were straight up evil. All they want to do is abort babies. So we weren't eating with them. We weren't associating with them. There better not be any Democrats in our church. Not now, then. You know? If so, we might have to go back to Matthew 18 and do some disciplinary action. But we didn't eat with them. We didn't hang out with them. I just didn't even realize it. You know, this stuff was subtle. It was just there. It was just taboo. It was just stuff we didn't do. We didn't have certain people in certain situations. That doesn't mean he didn't like them, right? It just means we can't be together. Ajith also shares this, Fernando Ajith. The evangelical church in particular has such a bad record in the areas of prejudice and condoning race, caste, and class distinctions. Muslims are now exploiting this by proclaiming the brotherhood of Islam as an alternative to the prejudice of Christians. And Islam is growing with converts from Christianity among peoples who were once treated inferior by other Christians. The pivotal message of verse 28 rings loudly for us today. God is doing work, and the work he is about is making us one people and making us together ministers of reconciliation, peacemakers. Peter's prejudice is confronted by the gospel. Likely Cornelius's prejudices are confronted by by the gospel. And I, I hope today that God is and will confront us in our own prejudices. Where are our prejudices keeping us from going? Who are our prejudices keeping us from being with? Who can't we eat with? What establishments are out of balance? Who are we willing to leave out of the good news of Jesus and leave out of the family of God? Because it just makes us too uncomfortable. Or because it would just seem a little too socially taboo to be associated with them. Or because it maybe like put us out with our own families. May God show us that we should not call any person common or unclean. And the second and final principle is this. Distance breeds skepticism, but compassion breeds proximity. I got that from a book by Daniel Hill called Wide Awake and Dante Stewart, who preached here a couple months ago, he just keeps processing that and talking about it more and more. Distance breeds skepticism, but compassion breeds proximity. And Dante posted this on Twitter uh, several weeks ago, and I, I really liked it. It says, he just kind of expanded it. Compassion breeds proximity. 
Proximity breeds relationship. Relationship breeds justice. And justice breeds flourishing. And I just, as I'm going through this story in Acts, and as I go through this scene in chapter 10, it just is so apparent to me that that is what's happening. Compassion breeds proximity. Like when Peter understands that the gospel is for these Gentile people, and he lets the compassion of Jesus confront his own prejudices, he enters in. He gets into the same proximity as these people. And proximity breeds relationships. When Peter enters in with them, uh, relationships are made. If you follow this down to the end of the chapter, you see that Peter ended up staying with them for several days. He doesn't just pop in, say what he needs to say, and get out. He gets to know them. They get to know each other. There's a relationship. And that relationship breeds justice. And like I said, there will be meetings about this. This will become clear as we go through Acts and as we get into the next couple chapters. But from this pivotal moment in these relationships, justice, that's right relationship with one another, is beginning to become a reality between Jew and Gentile Christians. And fourth, justice breeds flourishing. And the church is on the move. The kingdom of God is advancing even to the ends of the earth. It is flourishing because of what God is doing here in this moment and in these coming moments. But its roots are in a compassion that breeds proximity over allowing a distance that breeds skepticism to remain. This is what Jesus did. Paul, in Philippians 2, 4 through 8, says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born into the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus came to be with us who were unclean, to bring us into the family of God. And my hope this morning is that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to our own prejudices that would keep us distant and keep us skeptical of others. That he would give us a compassion that would send us to be with the very people that would make us comfortable. Not just because it's the right thing to do either, but because I think that there's something really good there. There's something really good there for us. There's always something good in obeying Jesus. But I believe we're missing out on the fullness of the good news if we aren't experiencing being identified with people we would never have been identified with before. That's something huge to be able to experience. What joy is stored up for us in befriending people we never knew we could befriend? What joy is stored up for us in being united with people we're not supposed to be So I just want to challenge us with something very practical this morning. I want to challenge us, Redemption Church, because we've been praying all year that God would make us a diverse congregation of believers, representative of our community, united by Jesus Christ. We've been praying that prayer, and I know you've been praying it with us. We've been praying it together on Sunday mornings. And I want to challenge us to put some feet to that. Like Peter had a vision of a sheet, like a tablecloth filled with animals and a command to eat. 
And it was about not just what Peter could eat, but who he could eat with and belong with. So I want to challenge you, I want to challenge myself, and challenge us very practically to eat with somebody you would not eat with. I just want to get it real. Give us something to really do. Somebody representative of those you might tend to ignore. Somebody representative of those you've not wanted to go to. And don't have dinner with them to confront them or to debate them, but to listen to them and just to get to know them. Just enter in to proximity with them. I know this can cause some discomfort. Even the idea of making an invitation or going to find somebody to invite, it seems kind of weird. But you've got somebody. There's somebody you can invite over for dinner or invite out for dinner or whatever it looks like. But it could be discomfort. It could be uncomfortable. But it will put us in the shoes of like the soldier and the slaves who stepped into the tanner's house in Joppa, into that blue-collared city, into a people who they do not belong to. And they stayed with them and they ate with Peter. It'll put you in their shoes. And it'll put you in the shoes of Peter and his companions where you walk in the door of someplace you're not supposed to be with the confidence that God is in the business of flipping the script. So I challenge you. Eat with somebody different than you. Make the invitation this week. And if you need to eat something different to be hospitable, do it. Enter in. Don't call anyone common. Don't call anyone unclean. And don't go with your guard up. Let it down. Listen and learn and get to know a person. And I know that some may have a problem having a person of color at the table, but, but many would also have a hard time eating with a Trump supporter or with a Democrat. Maybe downtown is challenging for you. We've been talking about walking toward downtown intentionally, right? Maybe it's weird for you. Maybe there's some challenging places for you. Maybe people who hang out down here seem weird, or maybe it seems dangerous because you just got that downtown stigma, or maybe it's something else like that. But you need to get in proximity to these people if we are going to walk toward them with the gospel of And the good news of Jesus is that through his death and resurrection, he has made a way for the forgiveness of sins, which stands between us and God and us and each other. And he's unifying us as one. He is making us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people, But now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. We're going to move into a time of response like we do each week. The band will come and they'll lead us in uh, worship. And we'll sing together. Time for you to reflect, to pray, to like even ask God to begin to expose some of your own prejudices that would keep you from going places or to people with the gospel. And during this time, we'll also take up tithes and offerings. There's a basket in the back where you can put those as an act of worship as well. And then each week, we also take communion together. So you can come down each of these kind of corner aisles. There'll be people serving on each side. You can tear off the bread, dip it in the wine or juice, and remember the body and the blood of Jesus Christ who came to forgive us of our sins, who came to break down the barriers that are between us and God and us and each other. Remember the gospel 
Jesus Christ is our Savior, and Jesus Christ has called you to be his friend. So we come and remember that and we proclaim it to one another. So if you're a Christian, whether you're a member here or not, we invite you to come and take with us. If you're not a Christian, don't take it, but hear what we're proclaiming. This is for you. Jesus is for you. And if you'd like to pray with somebody, we have somebody in the back that can pray with you. And there's also a, a prayer table where you can put prayers in if you'd like to, so you can utilize that. Would you pray with me? Our Father, I thank you again for our time together. I thank you for these people. I thank you that even in this room, we are a family of people who have no business being family. Like you've already made us a people who are not a people through Jesus Christ. Through the good news of Jesus, like our sins are forgiven and we're able to be in relationship with one another. We're already experiencing, and I pray it, Lord, this would taste so good that we'd want it to go further. I pray, Father, that you expose prejudices in us, expose where we would ignore people, not go to people, expose where we're uncomfortable, expose where we would rather let people die than go and be with them, cause us to repent, and cause us to turn and follow you and experience something better. And that is that you're making us a family with all people. You're reconciling all people and all things to yourself. You're doing a great work that is beyond our imagination. And there's something and a whole lot of things really good there. Lord, help us to taste this in Jesus' name.